and Thomas Watson wrote a book that was dealing with all things work for good. He's one of my favorite Puritan writers because he's so quotable. He has some gems that just stick out. You can't help but want to write those down and and, kind of look over it again. You ever have those kind of things you just highlight? Well, there's going to be some in here I guarantee today. It's not coming from me. It's going to be coming from Thomas Watson who is actually taking the insight from the Scripture. But the way that he puts it is so colorful and so uh, memorable. Uh, His insights, I think, are very well worth uh, pondering and meditating upon and, and thinking through as we think of the Scripture. He has a rich treasury of putting together words, so I think they can be very helpful. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you know when some highlights come up if you want to jot them down for something that you can look back later. Um, like I said, we could do all things work for good, and we know that. But when you start talking about the worst things... God just uses those things. And it, and it kind of sounds like something that's a little bit troubling. I mean, even sin, He can, he can work for good. <laughs> I mean, you know, how can He do that? You know, that would be a question that we'd have. And don't mistake me. Uh, things that are bad are bad, and by their very nature, they're, they're not good. Um, they're a fruit of the curse. And of course, we know what the curse has done to where we're at today. You know, these things are naturally evil. But yet the overruling hand of God is always there. Isn't that great to know? God overrules even the worst things that go on. And we're talking things that are even, you know, the morally bad things, the things that we can think of the worst, and yet He can make them for good. He can actually sanctify those things because that's a beauty of the sovereign God. I mean, that's how sovereign that He is. He's never taken by surprise anything He wants to halt. He can, and He does. He will. But even the worst of the worst of things, and it's for good. I think that's just incredible. I think that's about the wonderful providence of God as He works every little detail out in our lives while we still have the choices that we make, whether they're for the glory of God or they're not. He still puts those and weaves them together for those who are His. And uh, we're going to be looking at four of those. What are those? You might ask, what are those, Dennis? What are those four worst things? Some of the worst things. We'll uh, kind of work through that as we look through a lot of different Scripture based out of our Romans 8.28. So, <clears throat> need a little help from the Lord here, so let's go to Him. Father, we thank You for who You are and Your great grace as we sing about that. And we've, we know that You are also the potter and You are molding this clay. We are jars of clay. And You are taking this earthenware and You're bringing... Bring it in into the very image of Jesus Christ. And it's all for your glory. It's for our good. So as we look at these verses today, if they will help us understand a little bit more of the providence and the sovereignty of God and how good we as Christians really have it. In Jesus' name, amen.
the first thing we're going to look at is affliction. Affliction's pretty bad, isn't it? Pardon this ice that's moving around in there. Doctor said I should drink ice water. I'm drinking iced tea today because I drink ice water all day long, every day. And today of rest, so I'm drinking tea. Uh, <laughs> that's not caffeine. Ah. <laughs> oh. How about lemon? No sugar in it. I should have lemon. Is there lemon in there? This sometimes it is. Martin Luther said that he could never really understand what some of the Psalms meant until he was afflicted. You ever read the Psalms? They give you quite a bit of help when you have some kind of affliction or some kind of thing you're dealing with that's difficult. And what affliction does, it teaches us what sin is. The consequences of what happens with it. When you hear the word preached, you see how dreadful sin is and how defiling, how damning, how evil and wicked that it is. And yet sometimes we take sin to be something no more than a paper lion. <laughs> yeah, a paper lion is not going to hurt you, right? A lion will. But sometimes we just don't take sin seriously until a sick bed comes. And then we have to realize that we're depending totally on the Lord. Ah, I kind of forgot, Lord. And He gets our full attention sometimes and we have the affliction that can come to us. And by the way, it can help you know yourself a little bit better. It can help you realize where you fall short of God and it sees it, it can bring forth the, the corruption. That's what we battle against. Uh, Watson used the example of a glass of water. Of course, they didn't have purification systems maybe that we... Uh, do now but maybe their water was a lot purer too but so you could take a glass of clear water and it looks really nice and clean but you know you can heat it up and all of a sudden scum can come up on the top you ever notice that so sometimes when we get heated up some of that scum that corruption comes up to the top and it's not as clear as we think we need the fire of affliction occasionally to come along and wake us up Wake us out of our unbelief. <laughs> Wake us up out of our not trusting God, depending on Him. God has a special hand in affliction. You say, well, that's a devil that does that, and God doesn't do that. Well, God still has control of Satan. And yes, we know that He'll, he allowed, He permitted uh, Satan to put afflictions on Job, but God allowed that to happen. Nothing's ever going to happen that's how sovereign God is, unless God allows it to happen. And He actually steers it when you, when you look at it. You remember in the book of Ruth, you had Naomi, and she said her name was like Mara, which means bitter. <laughs> and she had, of course, her husband die because of the drought. They had moved to a foreign land, and then her two boys they died. They had two wives. And she says in Ruth one twenty one, The Almighty hath afflicted me. The Almighty has afflicted me. Now, maybe she's bitter against God, but she knows truth there. Job. Whenever, in chapter 1 of Job, whenever he realized what had happened, uh, Augustine made a comment on this. And Augustine says this, He doesn't say the Lord gave 
and the devil took away. What does he say in Job? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Even though the devil was all a part of that, he's just a pawn in God's hands. He's never going to do anything outside God's will. Of course, it's not that God's will that there be sin. That's where it gets difficult, I know. It gets kind of muddy there. But yet at the same time, he, that's why I say He can use the worst things for good. And how does that make sense? Afflictions. You remember, in, of course, in Jeremiah. There you have prophecies in Isaiah and all the prophets. There's warnings about the nation of Israel. God is warning them to repent. They don't repent. So what does He do? He brings on the enemy. He actually brought on an evil enemy, Babylon. They conquered Jerusalem. Destroyed the city. Destroyed the temple. It was in in, uh, turmoil. They just wrecked it. But you know what? God also said, I will bring you back your land the remnant will be my people and he did that it says in Psalm 25.10 all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth all the paths he's controlling those you take a painter brings in the, the colors that are so bright and beautiful you know just mixes those together and comes out with those perfect colors and then he puts in some dark shadows to make it real looking you know you look at a face if you don't have shadows when people do faces if you don't have the shadows of that face it doesn't look realistic if you're not a painter you may not realize what that really means but an artist knows that that is a key to making this realistic And so God uses darkness, the shadows, He mixes mercy with judgment also. Discipline. It's beneficial. And you can say, well, I need some more proof out of Scripture on this. One of them is real easy in Genesis. A guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. You know, he's thrown into the pit. Along come some people and they uh, take him down to Egypt. Then we know he's later found in prison in Egypt. We know how he got there. It wasn't his fault. But you know, after it was all said and done, he realized what God was doing. And he told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And of course, we know the end of the story on Joseph, and that's what it was. But Joseph looks back on this all. And I'm sure there were times where he was wondering, what what is going on? You know, why isn't God answering my prayer? And But yet, he trusted in God. Genesis 50.20 As for you, as he talks to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You see, they didn't know what the end of that story was. Of course, there was a great famine that came upon the land, all across the land. And Joseph was raised up into a position where he actually called the shots. <laughs> like he was the right-hand man of the king there. And they were asking wisdom. And, of course, we have uh, the food that is stored up before the famine came. We have the seven years. Nobody would have known that. Nobody would have seen the end result. And people are going to be saying, why would God let this happen? Why did He do this to me? That doesn't sound like the good God that I know of. God meant it for good. He looked past it all. We get the chance to look back at it and see it in hindsight and we can say, well, of course He did. Yeah, we know all along because we read that story. Can you imagine going through that? I have some strange sounds coming out of my voice today. I don't know if you guys notice it or not. You don't? Okay, it's good. You guys are kind. I'm forcing this thing out of my throat. (laughs) It's dry. (laughs) King Manasseh. You guys know King Manasseh? One of the most wicked kings that could ever be. This guy was nasty. I mean, there was no chance that this guy could ever become a believer. Babylon comes along. You know, they conquer the nation. They carry him away. He's thrown, you know, into prison. He's actually bound in chains. Sad to see. A crown of gold that he once had. And he exchanged it for fetters. That's what, what happened to him. But it was wrought for good. Because in Second Chronicles chapter 33, if you'd like to turn there, I'm just going to go to it real quick. When he was in affliction, he besought the Lord and humbled himself greatly. And the Lord was entreated of him. He sought the Lord in this great affliction. He wasn't a believer at all. He'd done some awful wicked things. He was one of the guys along with some of the other kings and the priests and the prophets. They were all bad. basically some of them. Corruption. And he was one of the worst. Bad mama too. What's that? Bad mama too. Yeah, that's right. What do you do with this guy? How can God save this guy? He he was responsible for having his people captured. He didn't lead them into repentance. He led them to idolatry. Of course, it's family that he comes from. You think of his mother and such. You can think of how he reacted with all of this. And then we see that he humbles himself. God saves him. uses the crisis of Babylon. Salvation. You think Manasseh would trade that for anything? (laughs) No. Salvation is the most key. In Job 42.10, after it's all said and done, done at the end of the uh, near the end of uh, Job the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and he prayed for his friends <laughs> you know 
kind of advice that they had given him. And the Lord increased all of Job at twofold. Restored the fortunes. Blessed him double. Incredible. We see the end of it. We see the glory of God. Because that's really where it all goes. You can say, oh good, you know, now you know, I have salvation. Well, that's great. But what's salvation about? It's for the glory of God. <laughs> all about Him. That's really where everything always goes to that point. How about Paul? Just doing his job, doing it intently. God comes along. He is smitten in blindness. He can't see. His eyes, he can't see. All of a sudden, that bright light blinding. He actually blinded him for a short time. God did that. But you know the result of it all, don't you? That was the point of salvation. And look what Paul did. Look at the New Testament books that he had written. He had caused so much persecution to the church of Jesus Christ. Had them killed, persecuted, and God saved him. Watson said this, I thought it was good. As the hard frost and winter bring on the flowers in the spring... As the night ushers in the morning star, so the evils of affliction produce much good to those that love God. Remember Mary, the angel comes to her and she has a question. (laughs) What's going on? How can this be? proper response I guess in a sense trying to wonder what's going on how this is going to come about what I'm going to do is show you several ways how affliction works for good we've seen some biblical examples the heart cleaves partly to God but yet still kind of hangs on to the things of the world hangs on to ourselves right the selfishness that we we are God starts taking away the world. The moment we become Christians, He starts taking away things that really don't need to be in our lives, that are really just absolutely worthless. And He starts replacing them with eternal things. And affliction sometimes can straighten those things out. And so He uses that. You ever thought of putting a crooked rod over the fire to straighten it. You ever heard of that? Look what the fire does. Straightens that crookedness. <laughs> That's what He's doing through our lives and certain afflictions come up. He takes that rod out there and puts it over the tremendous heat <laughs> and becomes more and more straightened. Another thing that it does is conforms us to Christ. We are not exactly like Christ right now, but we have the fruit of the Spirit in us. And as the Spirit and the Word of God works on us, we become more and more like Christ. That's the whole goal of this all, is to make us like His Son, Christ. Romans 8. You know Romans 8.28, right? And that's what we're based off of. You read, 
few more verses in there. 828, everybody knows it. 29 says, oh, by the way, the verse before this says that, you know, how can we lose? Even when our prayers are at their weakest, and when we can't even pray, he says, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. We have Jesus Christ, our advocate, interceding for us. We can't lose. And we know that God works all things together for good. For those who love God, are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew in eternity past, He also predestined to do what? predetermined that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. The very icon, word for image, icon, the very image of His Son. Why? And here's the whole purpose of it all. So that He, Christ, the Son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That word firstborn is preeminent first and everything preeminent so that he would be preeminent glorified and these whom he predestined the ones that he predestined for the foundation of the world what's going to happen to him he also what called and the ones he calls and that is a call that is for sure there's a call that's a general call that's to everybody. Few, many are called, but few are chosen. In time and space, He came to you. Those who He predestined, He also says He will come and call them. And to God in the past tense, not only had He called them when this was written, had He called us, but He justified them. That's what happened in our salvation as far as God is concerned, who is not wrapped up in time he had a relationship with us and he knew us before we were ever born he justified and then he justified he what he glorified (laughs) that hasn't happened yet has it it will because he's already said that and if you want to see one of the grandest passages in the Bible that just gleams and we, we find it in verse 29, or 28, 29, 30. From 30 on, 31 on, it shows how secure we are in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can keep us from the love of Christ. Not even ourselves. <laughs> and that's the main problem anyway, isn't it? We would turn from Christ. And he, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who can do it? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Holy Spirit intercedes in this chapter. Jesus Christ intercedes in this chapter. All things work together for good to those who love Him. 
So our heart is made right. We're conformed to Christ. It's destructive to sin. Whenever He afflicts us, it destructs sin. It destroys sin. He's working it out. The fire works out the dross. If you put gold or silver, precious metals, you want it pure, right? We want pure gold. What do you have to do to do that? You have to turn up the heat. That's the way it's always been done. It was biblical. That's the way it is here. Um, Afflictions. Hey, listen to this. Here's a Thomas Watsonism. Afflictions are the medicine which God uses to carry off our spiritual diseases. <laughs> you like that one? Afflictions are a medicine. We don't like medicine. We don't like to taste medicine. Even sometimes they know how to make it taste good now. Normally, we really we can forget to take our medicine because we meant to forget. We don't really care. But afflictions are the medicine which carry off our spiritual diseases. comes in there, so He uses that to, to burn off the dross. Another thing that does it, it loosens our earthly thinking about the world, the worldly things. God just digs away at some of those earthly comforts that we think we ought to have, and He's, He just digs some of it out. He's cleaning it out. Why does the Lord break the conduit pipe? But that we may go to Him who is the fountain of living water. Right? All our fresh springs are there. Look in Psalm 87, verse 7. He's got something better. I thought I knew best. (laughs) 87.7 Then... Those who sing as well as those who play the flute shall say, the last line, all my springs of joy are in you. Springs of joy are living water. He loosens out the earthly comforts to loosen our hearts from the earth. Another thing is it makes way for comfort. Look at John 16.20. Truly, truly. This is Jesus when He says truly. I mean, you will listen to Him anyway, right? When Jesus Christ says truly, I mean, your ears just open up. You're sitting there, you're cleaning your ears out, and you're going like this. You want to hear it. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve. He's talking about here now. We might grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Even right here, right now, does that. Ultimately, we know it's eternal joy from here on out. Your sorrow shall be turned to joy. It's talking about an inward peace. Joy may not always be laughing. Joy might be through all the affliction and you still have an inward peace knowing that, hey, whatever comes about, it's okay. <laughs> I know what I know what's going to happen. I mean, in the sense that where I'm going to go. After a bitter pill, Thomas Watson says, God gives sugar. <laughs> God gives hostess <laughs> treats. <laughs> Paul had his prison songs. 
<laughs> Paul and Barnabas, remember them? When they were thrown in prison. Watson says, God's rod has honey at the end of it. <laughs> Sweet. And the afflictions, we're still on the afflictions thing. It's the first one. It's the means for making us happy. Happy. Happy is the man whom God corrects. That's found in Job 5.17. Happy is the man who God disciplines. Happy. Blessed. What politician or moralist ever placed happiness in the cross? Job. In Job you find that. How do afflictions make us happy? It makes us draw near to God. To draw more near to God than we ever have been before. He sets our worldly comforts on fire. <laughs> and then we run to Him. He wants us running to Him. You remember the prodigal? He was an unbeliever. He left. But he came back. He was drawn to return home to his father when the deluge of affliction had struck him. Got down to the worst point. We'll fly to the ark of Christ, Watson says. He also said that makes us nearer to God. Faith can make use of the waters of affliction to swim faster to Christ. Don't you love it? Little one-liners that he has. It also puts silence to the wicked because when the unbeliever is seeing you go through some very tough things sometimes, they sit back. They may not ever say it to you, but they wonder, how does he get through that? How does he make that? And then when you do get through it, can you imagine the atheist that see that a godly person has gone through some of the worst trials and they see what happens, it stops their mouths. Another thing it does, and we'll move on to point two, it makes way for glory. Affliction makes way for glory. So how's that? <laughs> Turn to Second Corinthians 4. <clears throat> One of my favorite ones. I think you guys like this one. I know you like this one. You've heard it over and over and over. 16 explains what's happening as we are being trimmed down, as the dross is being ripped from us in 16. Therefore, 4.16 of 2 Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart, brethren. Right? Don't ever lose heart. Don't lose your hope. But though our outer man is decaying, that explains what's going on physically, even though. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, but day after day. Here we go. Here's the verse. This, that explains what's going on from momentary light affliction. There's the word light affliction. Momentary is producing for us it's producing for us it's working for us what's a product an eternal weight of glory that is prosperity teaching right there because it goes way beyond here I'm not saying the delights that we have here and 
all the things that we need to get by are, are negative and bad. They're good. God has blessed us. Great. Fantastic. Now go use it on others, right? Give it away. But right now, if you're going through some kind of affliction, he says, just put your mind on the thought you have an eternal weight of glory. It's not momentary. It's eternal. And it's far beyond all comparison. No humans can even understand what that's going to be. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, faith doesn't see. It does see. It sees God. It may not necessarily see the things around that we like to have changed. For the things which are seen are temporal or momentary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That's putting our, our sight, our minds, our thoughts. That's renewing your mind. Because now it takes your mind off of what your circumstances are, good or bad, and what does it do? Places it into the heavenlies. Because that's where we sit right now. He said, well, I sure don't feel it and I don't see it. And it says it right here. Those are the things that are not seen. And he says, look at the things that are not seen. Look at stuff you can't see. It sounds just like God. He says things that sometimes don't make sense. And then when you start learning His Word, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Or all sense in heaven. <laughs> and this great stuff, is this life-building stuff? Why? Well, God first lays the dark colors of affliction, and then He lays the golden color of glory on top of it. <laughs> The worst that God does, and here's another Watsonism. You can write this one down if you like. The worst that God does to His children is whip them to heaven. (laughs) Because we know Hebrews 12 talks about what? Discipline. And if we're not disciplined, then we, you know, the Father doesn't care, you know? But discipline means the Father does care. He wants them to be trained to discipline right. And here, if these things that are the worst, the worst that God does is bring us into heaven with a little bit of discipline. Make way for glory. That's what it does. That's what affliction does. Now, let's go to the second one. That's pretty bad. I don't like affliction. Does anybody here like affliction? No. I don't like it at all. Act of the matter is, though, here's what it does. Now, second one is temptation. That's bad. I don't like temptation. I hate it. I really hate temptation. And the sad part is that every one of us could sing this in unison and in harmony, and we'd all be saying, yeah, I hate temptation. I, I, I just hate it. I don't want it to be there. You have a tempter. The tempter is lying in ambush. The tempter happens to know what particular saints ways to go, maybe the wrong way, and he can use that. It's our temperament. Um, he observes our temperament. He observes what we do, what we tend to go to, and sometimes those things he can really use. He can he can bait us up. With temptation. It's like the farmer. He knows what the grain is best for the soil. 
You know, that particular kind of thing can grow here. Well, that's what he looks for: the temperament. The, the devil cannot go into your mind and know your thoughts. You know, that's good to know. He doesn't know your thoughts. He's not God. Yet he does know your temperament. And that's where he lays the bait. Matter of fact, he will lay the bait at the perfect time. He is very intelligent. And he makes use of things. He's like a fisherman who's casting out you know, his bait. He knows when the fish are going to bite. He's not even going to go out at a certain time. So they're not biting right now. He's done this. He knows. He's observed that. He knows the river. He knows when it's a good time, when it's a bad time. So he can do that. He makes use of all sorts of different things, near relations and opportunities that he takes and things surrounding us. And he is most to be feared when he's transformed into an angel of light. He came to Christ with Scripture in his mouth. Christ replies back, It is written. Satan can use Scripture. He knows Scripture very well. That's what we have to realize. He can instill thoughts into the mind to get our thoughts going. Uh, you look in John 13.2. happen to have the case of Judas here. It's quite a character study, isn't it? We're at the Passover. The night before Christ is going to be crucified... During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. The devil put that thought there. The problem with Judas, he yielded to it. He wasn't a sheep. And taking those messages uh, of uh, Luke in the last couple of weeks. Thank you, Luke, for coming in and doing those. Those were... Absolutely delightful, very refreshing. I appreciated it very much. Have to have you give us some more thoughts on on that or something later on. Um, we know that Judas is not the sheep. We know about that. But at the same time, he made his own choice. While at the same time, Satan is putting that thought there. And you know how that works out. Goes beyond my mind. That's just the way it worked. There's some kind of an inclination to temptation. Do you know we get inclinations to temptation? Where do some of those thoughts come from? Uh, in First Chronicles 21:1, Satan provoked David to number the people. Remember that? Yeah. And that was a terrible sin. He said numbering the people. It was more to that than just. You know, oh, I need to know how many people are here. You know, there was great pride in what David was doing, and uh, there was consequences that came out of that. Well, that's another story. We'll go on. Temptations are overruled by the sovereign God because He works it for good to us. You say, yeah, but what happens when we sin? <laughs> you know, God doesn't 
just wink at it. No, no, he doesn't. He's saying that he makes me sin. Never. God cannot and will not ever make us sin or tempt us. It says in James 1, you know, so we can't even use that. Never will he. That's not his will for that to happen. Temptation can send the soul to prayer. When we're realizing we're being attacked, where should we go? Go to the commander. Commander. He's the one that fights the battle. Put your armor on, right? Ephesians 6. We can pray very fervently when we're getting attacked. And it sure seems like this is the devil himself or one of his henchmen. Right? The more a child of God is tempted, the more he fights against the temptation. Because we hate it. And when we fail and we don't, we know what we did. And temptation can take away pride. Faith that. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, here you have Paul, who had seen the third heaven. Amazing what he saw. Well, what did he see? Things he couldn't talk about. You can't put it in the English language. He saw probably some things that John saw in what you see in Revelation 21 and 22. But it goes far beyond that. Our human minds cannot... Our human minds will not enter into that kingdom. That's why we have to be glorified. Because we couldn't enter that. We cannot understand all the glorious things that are in heaven. What it's about. We could not. We, we, we can't even... We can't see God. We can't see Christ right now. But the glory that's there, we'll be able to see. Because we will be glorified. But in the meantime... Paul was there. What is a natural tendency to do? Start telling people, hey, God brought me up to heaven. I'm not trying to brag or anything, but here's some things I want to tell you about. What does, what does Paul say? What does he say? 12.7 Because of the surpassing Greatness. That's just what I was talking about. Of the revelation. There's a passing. You can't even understand it. Not in this human mind. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Whatever there was. A messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. He's human like us. It is easy to have that pride. Matter of fact, he says, I implored the Lord three times that it would leave. And you know what the Lord said? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected. Perfected. Wow. Power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That's incredible. So, definitely temptation can take down the pride, can it? Whenever we're tempted, temptation can come from Satan. At the same time, God can say, okay, coming from me, this is a trial. I'm not tempting anyone. But Satan 
tempts, God can still use it as a test. Isn't that interesting? Kind of twofold there. Temptation really is a trial of our sincerity. How sincere are we? It's almost like God's saying, okay, you're tempted by Satan. Now what are you going to do about it? Put it into action, right? Temptation works for good. Matter of fact, we can comfort others when we have been tempted and tested. Sets the power of God working. We say, yeah, but sometimes Satan foils the child of God. Gives in, he caves. Anybody identify with that? Nobody put their hands up, but we all know all of them would go up. How? How? Yeah, there can be a fury of temptation. We, boom, we blew it. We sinned. A saint can be overcome. But it will be overruled for good. Because God is in control of this. God makes way for augmenting His grace. Amazing. Peter was just tempted to self-confidence and he presumed himself upon all of the strength of his own way. And he stood alone. Matthew 26.75 says he went out and wept bitterly. He knew that he had failed. Jesus told him that Satan's going to sift you like wheat. God could have kept that from happening. But it works for good. Look over in the book of Acts. You'll see a guy by the name of Peter preaching the gospel. Filled with the Holy Spirit. With power. Read his first and second epistles. Amazing how a man was changed. Occasions of sin. Yeah, God can use it. Watson said, So the wind of temptation is a contrary wind to that of the Spirit. But God makes use of this crosswind to blow the saints to heaven. So as we talk about all this negative stuff, do you see how positive really this all is for the Christian? It's, it's all going to work out for good. So I sinned there, but hey, it's good. It's okay. I can sin all I want because it's going to work for good. Don't say that. Romans 6 says, May it never be that His grace would abound because of my sin. Forbid that, right? But you can look back. You know the grace and forgiveness is there. What about whenever the evil of desertion of, of God seems to happen? And what I mean by that, it seems like I pray it. It just doesn't seem like God is listening. For a season sometimes, it seems like He just kind of vacates His spot. We know better doctrinally. We know He's there. But yet, you don't feel Him there. Well, actually, we are the ones who desert Him. <laughs> we desert Him first. It's not that we're not, or we're not going to come back. But the close communion that we so much desire for is not there. Well, I'll tell you some good news. Romans eight twenty eight says God works all things together for good to those who love Him, called according to His purpose. Did you know what? 
He can't ever desert the ungodly because he's never been there with them. I mean, in the relationship, right? The foreknowing and the knowing them, right? None but the godly are capable of desertion. Wicked men don't know the love of God. They don't know the grace of God. They don't know what they want. They're always looking for different things. Why is the world doing some of those things? You say, yeah, I did some of those things. I sure am glad I'm not doing those anymore. Why didn't I see what was going on? Because you were blinded. Second Corinthians 4 says, you're blinded by Satan. Christ comes in with the glory of the Gospel, shines upon your heart, and you come to life. Another thing is, Watson pointed out, the seed of grace is planted. It's underneath the dirt. You don't see it. hasn't grown yet. You don't see the crop when you first plant it. But who knows how much... I mean... We are expecting a big crop out of this, right? All the seed that we put in. The earth is a great example of you can look at it, don't see it, but you expect more will come out of it, and it does. A sweet fruit of joy. You may not see it. David was in a state of dejection. Psalm 51.11, he said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Holy Spirit's always here. That shows that there was a residing of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a feeling of desertion, which he had for like a year. It just really ripped at him and tore him. Uh, Augustine said, He does not pray, Lord, give me your Spirit, Because why? He already had him. (laughs) He does say, don't take him away. I want your presence always. Don't desert me. By the way, in Isaiah 54.8, it says, In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. That was from the nation of Israel. God hid his face brought on judgment, but he says, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you. By the way, those desertions are but for a time. Just a little season. And they are for good to the godly. And what it can do is cure friendships with the world. I'm not talking about people, but the worldly things, the system of the world. These secular things... Steal away the heart too much. And so, this idea of God's desertion sometimes is to realize that those things of the world aren't so important anymore, are they? Makes us want Christ more than ever. Psalm 63.3 God has no better way to make us value His love than when He withdraws for a time. You ever been away from somebody you love so much? It could be a month. It could be a week. Even a day. But you long for that person that you love. So we really want Him even more than ever. Always presenting. By the way, God never wants us more than ever. 
Because he has us at the most that he can possibly have. He'll never love us more because he can't love us less. His love has always been at its supreme high value. And it embitters sin to us whenever we've kind of seemed like God has drawn away. It sets us seeking after Him. By the way, it makes us see what Christ suffered. He took the cup, the bitter cup, the cup of deadly poison, the wrath of God. It came from God. God is the one who who He died for to start with. He died for us. But ultimately, He died for God. Does that sound strange? If you look in Isaiah 53, you'll see that. In Isaiah 53, it says that it pleased God the Father to crush Him. Why? Because the plan was is to redeem us and it takes the suffering, dying Son who's going to take care of our sin. What did he say? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He says that in his humanness. Because at that time he was going through terrible suffering. It also prepares us for future comforts. Fire casts us down, but there is comfort. He sends a comforter. Now we go to the last one. The evil of sin works for good. It's hard for me to say that. One thing, my throat (laughs) doesn't want to say. Secondly, though, that sounds really strange. Sin, and we want to make this very clear, in its own nature is damnable. Sin will be finally put to death one day. But God in His infinite wisdom overrules it. And He causes good to arise out of things that seem so much to oppose His holiness. That's incredible, folks, to see the dynamics of something so sinful and He works it for good. How does First of all, the sins of others. I'd rather talk about the sins of the, <laughs> the world, the government, all the leaders, all the nasty stuff and corruption that's going on there. The sins of others, it should present to us a holy sorrow, and I know it does. And whenever, whenever we see things like abortion, it brings us to grief. Either you're crying physically or you're crying in here. I mean... My, you know, even the nature of man, even as simple as he is, has intelligence to know this is a living being. They know it. The doctors are coming to that conclusion. But we have a holy sorrow when that comes about. Uh, Rivers of tears run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Psalm 119. 136. All the different things that are going on with so much aware. I don't even have to take the time. I don't have the time to do it anyway. I don't want to. David was a mourner for the sins of his times. His heart was turned into a spring and his eyes into rivers. 
He mourned. He wept. Nehemiah, we've been studying Nehemiah on Tuesday nights. It was brought to him what was in Jerusalem and how it was torn to shreds and it was just demolished. The walls were down and everything. And he, the first thing he did, he grieved and he wept. That's what sin caused. Jesus wept. As he looked over Jerusalem, he saw that these people who had revelation to them given and the leaders led them in to where they didn't know what the truth of God was. We weep, we grieve for the sins of others. We, we even repent with them. We, we identify with them. We, this nation, Lord, were so sorry of all the things that it's doing. Mark 3, 5, Jesus said that this. He wants us to have a Christ-like heart. So when we look at the sins of all the things that's going on, He was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Jesus was grieved. Mark 3, 5. Last of all, and getting ready to close on this, our own sinfulness. We can see the sins of others. We have to see the sins of ourselves. and That's really where it starts. He's going to work it for good to the godly. Only our sin. He's not going to work the good to, to the unbelievers. Their sins are not going to work for good. But it's to the ones who love Him. He will still make our own sins turn out for good. There's nothing good in sin. Sin is poison. It corrupts the very lifeblood of us. It, you know, it brings death, James says, ultimately is what it says. Augustine said, God would never permit evil if He could not bring good out of evil. I think that goes back to His very plan. You can say, well, why is there evil then? Why did He allow it to happen if He's in such control? I think that question goes beyond our thinking. But I can say this. There would not be a cross because he wouldn't have had to die for sin. There would not be grace. We would never understand what grace is. We'd never understand what mercy is. We'd never understand that love that he did demonstrate on the cross. Those are some of the elements that we can see the attributes of God. We would never, even in eternity, understand it. And when you've been brought from death to life, Experience that. You see it theologically and, and you see it in your own emotions. What God has done. Sin can make us weary of this life. I see it and I see it more than I ever did before and I think it's purely because I'm just getting older. It's like I just hate it more than I ever did before. I see it out there. Then I see it in my own life. What I still need to be trimmed of. I, I hate it. I'm weary of this life. Lord, come back. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I still rejoice in this world that I'm in because God has given me life here. So, you know, I'm torn. <laughs> what Paul said, I'm torn. I could be with Christ now. Or absent from Him while I'm here. 
there are still people who need the Word of God. Okay, thanks, Lord. Thanks for putting that proper. Paul's afflictions were but play to him. He rejoiced in tribulation. Second Corinthians seven four. He rejoiced in tribulations. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Romans seven twenty four. And then coming up, you have Romans eight. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A believer carries his sins as a prisoner, has his shackles on him. Oh, the longing that we have for that day we are released because we are still incarcerated in this fleshly body. It's a good tool, it's a good instrument that is to be used here, but it can't be used in glory. I have to have something new and better. The sense of sin then is still worked out for the good. When we're self-searching and self-abasing and self-judging, looking at ourselves correctly according to what the Word of God says, and we say, I'm guilty of these sins, Lord. I'm guilty of this. And we confess to Him. We repent. We, we judge ourselves in the sense it says in Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper. Make sure that you know if we judge ourselves, then we don't have a, a judgment coming from the church or judgment even coming from Christ. A subtle heart needs a, a watchful eye. Watson said, The heart is like a castle that is in danger every hour to be assaulted. So, that brings us full circle. Because one of the first things we think about is, you know, what about my sin? It's been taken care of. It's taken care of the cross. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory Almighty. This is amazing that you could take the worst things that can ever happen and you can think of some terrible, terrible, awful things that can happen. And then what do you do? You look at Him and still at the same time knowing He's going to work this for good somehow. I don't know how, but I can tell you I know that He's going to do it because He promises it here. You like this Romans eight twenty eight and uh, Genesis fifty twenty. You meant for evil, as Joseph said to his brothers, but God meant it for good. That's right. To those who love God, called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank.